what we make of it. Shotgun wedding. Sometimes a first date requires paperwork. A Good Omens fic, written by Charlotte Madison and read by Literarian. Chapter 11 December 26th My dearest C, greetings from the icy home front all the way to sunny California. I hope this finds you and Adam holding up under the thumb of Big Neuro and that you found the time between appointments to enjoy more frisbee, bowling and comic shops. I also hope better hotel breakfast buffets have found you in Palo Alto, though I think you enjoyed composing commentary to me as much as you would have enjoyed better food. Thank you for sending the photographs of Mount Rainier and Lake Washington. Seattle looks lovely. Delightful as it is to share every third thought with you through the buzzing brick in my pocket, certain things are better communicated in long form. To that end, I've commandeered our usual booth on a quiet evening to write to you the old-fashioned way. I wish you could see the looks I'm getting as I break out the good stationery here at the Viper. First and foremost, I find your absence intolerable. Do hurry back. In the second place, do you think Eric would allow takeout at the bar beyond our emergency pizza? I've exhausted the flavours on tap here, and while I could never tire of your company, I think I am ready to taste something new when next we are together. I wish we could share a proper meal sometime. I do not write with any thrilling updates from home. As you've often heard me say, I have little to report from week to week. In the more eventful lives of my friends, Shadwell is vacationing in remote Nova Scotia, where he will doubtless relish having terrible weather to complain about. Tracy has changed from platinum blonde to Lucille Ball red, and Mistress Device is taking her bow to a pagan celebration in Vermont over the new year. I look forward to learning more about what that entails. Newt is apparently game for anything, even as he seems deeply bewildered by his good fortune. My winter break consists mostly of reading and letting cups of tea go cold while I read. To be honest, my evenings and weekends pass much the same way when school is in session. Meeting you has been quite a disruption to my mild literature and Salem-centric existence. Come back and thwart my plans, or at least my peace, again. I wish I had more of interest to share now that I set pen to paper. As you are doubtless discovering, I am not the sword-wielding hero of any story. I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I fenced for several years at Eton and Cambridge. Did I mention that? Not that I was any good, always got caught wrong-footed. And though I loved it as a sport, I never played at slaying dragons when I was young. Perhaps reading stories about other people slaying dragons was enough for me. 
though I rather pitied the dragons. Instead of heroes and warriors, I always identified with the mysterious apothecary at the crossroads, the hermit living in the great sacred tree, the wise old witch guarding the entrance to the ice cave, that sort of character, the one who helps the young heroes along by delivering the message, the riddle, the map, the enchanted weapon, the one who arms the beleaguered protagonists and reveals their quests, then packs them a bundle of baked goods and waves goodbye, and presumably returns to their cozy tree full of books and teacups. That must be why I teach. If I was created for a purpose, I am fortunate to have found it. I love my work. Students face so much, especially now, and I ache to equip them for the world with half a fighting chance. Language and literature are all I have in the armory, so I throw the doors open wide and hope they'll choose wisely. Three high schoolers came into Tracy's bookshop today. I think they wanted a little safety and space to think their thoughts and arm themselves for the world outside. It was my great joy to provide that to them this afternoon, even if I could provide little else. It made me miss my students. Their hair comes in such fascinating colours these days, doesn't it? Yet... Much as I enjoy teaching, it doesn't give me anything to recount in a letter. In fact, it's a wonder I've found anything at all to say the last few times we've met. It's a challenge to keep up with someone as quick-witted and worldly as you are. You'll race far ahead before long, leaving me in the conversational dust. I don't mean to sound self-deprecating. I'm just clarifying the reasons I seldom have news or stories to share. But what my days lack in variety, I hope they make up for in depth. My tranquil routine allows me to look long and hard into the world around me, and that careful attention is how I keep track of exactly where and what I am. For, as the poet warns us, Beware, O wanderer! The road is walking too. Jim Harrison Perhaps that is why I am so slow. Cautious. Outdated, you may think. Topography matters greatly to me, the shape of the landscape. I feel the universe shifting beneath my feet and I need to stay balanced. Meanwhile, everything that seems worth doing just takes so much time. I have frustrated many a friend and a few former lovers with my failure to adapt to the pace of the modern world. Am I apologizing for my pace? I think not. You wouldn't let me anyway. I can hear you shouting me down all the way from Cascadia, sloshing your wine, gesticulating wildly. I am merely explaining what I know myself to be. Slow patient, a creature of the moment. Rather than chase time's coattails, I want to be awake to the breeze and bluster of its passing on my skin. There's no catching that old bastard anyway. So, 
every day I walk outside for at least an hour, without any destination in mind, even when the weather is foul. I must know the color of the sky and the turn of the season. I must. There is so much to observe every day. And this is nothing I can relate to anyone. It's not a story or a joke. It's not something that happens to me, except inasmuch as it happens to all of us. Doesn't its happening to all of us make it worth observing with reverence? And this is what I'm full of, while other people have been making choices and doing things. Sky colors. Birdsong. Books. It's terribly old-fashioned. When I am angry with myself, it seems cowardly. When I'm not, it's transcendent. Here, then, is the news I have to report to you, if I may be truly honest about what matters to me from day to day. In your absence, the clouds have cleared and the wind has dropped. The old snow is dirty with exhaust and gravel, but frost is overgrowing the larger berms and may polish them up again, given time. There are sometimes caps of fog over the ponds and rivers at this temperature, all silver under the waxing moon and the street lamps. This close to solstice, the sky is dark overhead, even at midday. A rich navy, paling to yellow and silver on the horizon with a touch of rose to the south. I have been out walking before sunrise all week to see the frost flashing stars at me from every tree branch. And with school out of session, I can go again at noon to feel the sun, which shines her palest white in December. Even though we're only a few revolutions from the longest night, I know she'll sit a touch higher in the sky every day. A flock of bohemian waxwings took off from the riverbank as I approached this afternoon. They encamped in an elm to scold my intrusion at length. I saw a brilliant blue jay in a neighbor's yard. We have some very handsome crows in my neighborhood, always well-dressed and savvy and sarcastic. They do rather remind me of you. The wretched gulls complain as always, but I suppose they have their reasons. Some stubborn ducks have overwintered here, spoiled by the detritus of the college campuses and the sentimental faculty who feed them all year. Is it ungracious to laugh at their confusion and quacking when the ponds ice over? I'm sure you would. And then there are the soft and stodgy rock pigeons, ever-present, purring and strutting just fast enough to keep out from underfoot. If I am represented among the birds, I suppose that must be me. Common, grey, reluctant to fly when walking will do, introduced from the old country with a taste for finer food than fits the budget. But if one were to see them for the first time, rather than every day, mightn't their plumage seem lovely too? If in a muted, gentle way. You will protest that I am no such thing, you tempting flatterer. And it is generous of you to defend me. 
but I know what I am well enough, and I am comfortable with what I am too. I do not know what you are. Comparisons fail me, even my wily local Corvitz, for there does not seem to be anything in the world remotely like you. I promise not to pluck out the heart of your mystery. I could never. Yet I hope you will forgive my fascination. I have guesses and observations, of course. I think I am not far off in supposing you have lived several bold and clever lives. You must have undertaken many adventures, some swashbuckling and art heists among them, I expect. And if you've fallen flat before, unsurprising, given your abundance of legs, you appear quick to hop up and roll ahead to the next scheme. Irrepressible, that's the word. You are brilliant to behold in motion, my dear. Hypnotic. Your absurd non-Euclidean lounging has me quite enthralled. I suspect you must have attracted your fair share of admirers over the years. Not that it matters, given our situation, but you may count me among them if it makes you smile. I confess I think often about our last parting. You do not seem to shy away from choices and opportunities in your life, as I have from my own. You do not hold back from love when you find it, if your powerful devotion to Adam is any indication. And I see you going to great lengths to take care of what you love. My various loves, even for friends and family, have always been timid. Controlled burns to stave off wildfires. Do not be surprised if I wonder at your courage and willingness to leap wholeheartedly into your life. It makes me reflect on what might have been different in mine if I'd had an ounce of faith. If I had truly faced the choices facing me. I am learning rather late that to hold choices at arm's length is a kind of choosing too. But I have no real room for regrets. Not now. Not while I know you are out there making trouble somewhere. Not while my thousands of students roam the earth with stories at hand to be their sword and shield. Not while winter stars still manage to outshine the city lights despite humanity's best effort to dim them. I don't believe anything could ever dim you. If I am bolder here than I should be, Blame the ink and paper. They've always held my courage for me. They've always carried me where I most wanted to go. My best to you in your nocturnal misadventures and to Adam, who is a remarkable young man. And a brilliant author in the making. I do hope he shares his work with you before long. Please return soon and safely to the East. And when you do... I hope you will remember to look upward. Until we meet again, I remain yours truly, AZ. P.S. Enclosed in this priority package, you'll find some cocoa mix, as per your request for cozy. Tracy's special blend. I do hope it reaches you before you drive south.
Crowley liked to pretend that his office at Dunleavy didn't actually exist. It was just a bad dream he occasionally had to endure, a terrible VR game he was playtesting, an unfortunate hallucination brought on by anesthetic during oral surgery. His windowless office contained not a single photo or memento. His desk was immaculate and empty. The plant in the corner was plastic, and he despised it, and he kept it there because it felt good to despise it. He had a flipped photo of the same plant as his desktop background to make the monitor look like a mirror. A mirror which did not reflect Crowley, since he was not actually there. He'd grown practiced at conversing with the various NPCs at work as if they were real, when he had to, without giving away a shred of information about his home life. With his superiors, he was all glowing confidence and smarm. They loved him. With his colleagues, he was aloof and combative. They despised him. He remained mercifully uninvited to happy hours, work parties and team-building exercises. Most of them probably thought he was straight and a tosser. He knew this because he knew how they treated people who were not straight. It wasn't a job. It was a very shiny prison cell he endured for a few hours a week so he could return to the real world where he was a person. No worse than sleeping, really. Just a loathsome time out with unlimited black coffee on tap. The phone on his desk rang, and he ignored it, as he always did. Voicemail transcription would let him know what it was. But it rang again immediately. Crowley checked his door was closed, put the call on speaker, and started recording with his mobile. Hi, he said in a tone of pure disdain. Crowley, legal wants a word with you. Yeah, who's this? You know who, asshole, it's Ligger. Right. And now it was on the record. What the hell is this memo you sent downstairs? We all thought you were smarter than this. The legal department at Dunleavy was populated by the ruthless sort of attorneys who didn't mind becoming very rich on money won in predatory lawsuits against underfunded schools and school districts. Crowley'd had a lot of contact with them back when he worked in oversight and editing. He despised them. Generally, they despised him right back. Especially Ligger. I just heard a rumor, I all, about someone on my team. Crowley drawled unhurriedly. And I wanted to make sure I understood the company line on something very curious about the subject's employment contract. Our opinion is to stay the fuck out of your colleagues' private lives and don't get us sued. Who is it, anyway? Mm, can't say. Off the record? Still can't say. Crowley, what is it with you? I don't know if you got a vendetta against this lady or what, but keep your eyes on your own work. Nobody gives a shit. 
If she found a loophole, she found a loophole. It's a weird situation, but it's none of your goddamn business. If she does something illegal through her spouse in the future, something that violates the conflict of interest rider, then we'll have remedy anyway. But this in itself? To be honest, it's embarrassing, the clause allows it. Not that we would have anticipated this bullshit closet case arranged marriage approach. So, you wouldn't sue them for breach of contract? Or fire them? Why in the hell's name would we do that? The way our contract is worded, it would take years, and it'd be a fucking PR disaster. Cost us hundreds of hours. And more than likely, she'd countersue. There are so many sexual orientation torts right now. Those people are like sharks in the water when they smell blood. They get loitered up if you so much as say the wrong pronoun or some shit. And everybody's sympathetic in this snowflake state. We have to be careful. She could really make us look bad. Use her same-sex thing against us. Crowley clenched his fists till they turned white and sneered masterfully at the phone. He had practice. Right, he said. If she turns whistleblower and claims discrimination on account of orientation, we'd be handing her a book deal and a speaking to her. We're fucked even if we win. But... And here came the kicker. Crowley steeled himself. Would we win? Doesn't matter. Court of public opinion would rake us over the coals. How is that worth it for us? We'd settle at best. Our objective now, since we're stuck with the situation, is don't make waves, don't get sued, fix the loophole for future hires. And that's what I called to tell you. You better not give her a reason to talk to HR. Don't ask about her spouse. Don't even look at her sideways. She's probably out to get us. If you've arrested her, there better be no paper trail. Nothing documentable. Right. Who is it? I guess HR will find out when they update their insurance. Stay out of it, you goddamn tool. Do your job. Tool. Right. Ciao. Crowley hung up and seized his mobile frantically to save the recording. He double-checked that it caught the whole thing, emailed it to himself, backed it up in three places, and began to breathe again. There was an error in his contract. Just a little ambiguous wording. And he now had legal opinions about it from a lawyer who liked him and a crack team of lawyers who hated him. Beezus had begrudgingly agreed to chase down the school district and the teachers' union for answers, since it wouldn't look good for Crowley to be caught doing that. His voice might break with longing while he asked them questions anyway. Bees was in no danger there. They were still waiting to talk with the union rep, but overall this outlandish proposal seemed less and less outlandish by the hour. The troublesome, bouncing flare of hope inside Crowley fizzled and spat madly. It didn't hurt much less than the weeks of heartache had, but at least the texture was different. 
less rending, more short, sharp shocks as sparks hit the chamber walls. They were almost pretty, little fireworks of painful anticipation. And yet Aziraphale still hadn't answered any of his messages. Crowley closed Signal, only dimly aware that he had opened it, and texted Adam. Today, 1537. Hey, you at Brian's? I know it's Wednesday, but is it absolutely 100% essential that I come pick you up right this minute? For some reason? Today, 1538. Yeah, if you don't come get me right now, everything will be bad. Dev better work the rest of the day from home. Always there for you. See you in 20. Same. Crowley slipped the phone into his left breast pocket, next to the warm folded pages of the letter that had lived over his ridiculous sappy mess of a heart since December. He emailed Dagan, the office manager, about putting in another few hours from home, grabbed his coat and scarf, and sprinted out the door. It could work. 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 With every step away from the office, his heart beat a little more insistently. It could work. They could see each other. They could chat and play cards at the bar on Friday night like always, but then they could go upstairs when it got too loud. Together. Then they could chat and play cards upstairs. Together. And then they could shift to the couch and drink wine together. And then they could make out together. And then they could get in the shower together. And then they could press together. And they could... They could... Fuck. He'd nearly boarded the wrong train, entirely lost in fantasy. Crowley shook himself back into the present and crossed the platform, sheepish and flustered. He could hardly see his surroundings. The visions of Aziraphale were so vivid. Crowley had felt dead inside for weeks. No hunger, no boredom, no horniness, no desire for anything at all. But now hope was roaring in hot, and all he wanted was to steep for several hours in thoughts of soft curls, soft voice, soft chin, soft lips, soft skin, soft thighs, that soft and salty weight on his tongue, all the places he might put his mouth, how slowly he'd begin, how deep he'd dig in, how it might sound to... Right. This train. Get in, sit down. Try not to get a goddamned hard-on on the red line. Crowley's home office was filled to its chick-exposed beam ceiling with lush tropical greenery, verdant even in midwinter. It hosted dog and an ever-changing crew of crickets. There were always two or three patient succulents in bloom. There were photographs and postcards taped inside all the cupboards and closet doors. It was minimalist and modern and clean, but it was 
bursting with life in a way not a single soul at work could begin to appreciate. It was far more to Crowley's taste. He would finish the workday there. He had ever so much to do. Perhaps after a shower. When Aziraphale finished recording his last discussion notes on Friday afternoon, he looked up to find Adam still at his desk, alone, writing. Adam, are you ready to go? Adam answered without looking up from his laptop. Brian's not here, can't go. Of course, any idea where he is? I don't know. Maybe he left early and forgot to tell me. Maybe he's talking to a girl and he forgot I exist. There was a touch of bitterness there. Aziraphale smiled into his notebook. Ah, high school. A notification pinged his desktop. Adam had sent him an email from across the room linking to the updated Lonely Astronomer with two new chapters. You've certainly been busy, Aziraphale said. Mistress Device tells me you finished some spreads in her class last month. Yeah. Aziraphale knew when to wait, and he waited. Adam thought a long while before he spoke again. Is there such a thing as a fiction book that isn't a comic book but has a lot of pictures in it anyway? There certainly is. I have a few. Would you like to see? He swiveled to the shelves that were blocked in by his desk, where he kept his own collection of books. He sometimes showed them to students or read aloud from the worn and precious editions, but they never left the classroom. Adam approached. Aziraphale selected the heavy Alan Lee-illustrated Lord of the Rings and handed it over carefully. As Adam flipped between the colour plates, Aziraphale also pulled out Matilda, the Phantom Tollbooth, Winnie the Pooh, The Little Prince and Rumo and His Miraculous Adventures by Walter Moers. As he stacked the books on his desk, as he watched his other volumes tilt and settle on the shelves in their absence, he thought, I shouldn't. But he knew already that he would. Aziraphale told himself that he might have even if he'd never known Crowley. Adam was an exceptional writer and a passionate reader, but not much for homework which made him exactly the kind of student that awakened Aziraphale's most protective pedagogical instincts. Since Adam chafed under quizzes and grades and the other arbitrary trials of high school, the way to help him succeed was to keep his curiosity burning and push him to use his talents. The boy would respect a gesture like this. Aziraphale reached for the black canvas shopping bag under his desk. I've read most of these already, Adam said. 
but he was touching the embossed leather and red cloth bindings with a gentle awe that Aziraphale found appropriate for his treasures. I'm sure you have, said Aziraphale. I wonder if you might look through them again and think about how the pictures affect your readings of the books. What did they choose to illustrate? What would you have imagined without the illustrations? Is there anywhere you wish you had a picture, but they don't offer you one? Why do you think they chose to show what they showed and tell what they told? Adam put down the Tolkien and picked up the Murs. If I were to lend these books to you, Adam, would you take extremely good care of them? Aziraphale asked, infusing gravitas into every word. These copies are especially valuable to me. Some of them are rare editions. Adam nodded, never looking up. Very well, I'll be trusting you. Spend some quality time with them over the weekend. I would like them back by Wednesday. Aziraphale took a note of all the titles in his diary and fished out a plastic bag to wrap the books against the weather. Thank you, Mr. Fell. Adam held the cloth bag open and the books were gingerly wrestled inside. Aziraphale tied the handles together and kept custody of the bundle for now. Can I walk you up to the office until you get your trip home sorted? He asked. I guess so. You leaving now? Adam returned to his desk to put his laptop away. Aziraphale usually stayed late for grading, but it was Friday and he didn't particularly want to sit for another half hour with his thoughts and Adam Young. He felt utterly achingly transparent around the boy, especially now that he'd offered him an armful of his most cherished belongings. Might as well take the grading home and finish over Coco. Yes, I'm leaving now, he answered, unbuckling his leather satchel to pack up. Adam tucked his coat on and came to stand where he always did with his friends, with Crowley. Not too close, but near enough that someone would break his fall. They left together. As he locked up, Aziraphale cast about for something to say. How was the long weekend then? Fine. How did you spend it? Making plans. Aziraphale chuckled. <laughs> well, that isn't ominous in the least, is it? Adam's phone buzzed. Oh, Brian's auditioning for Into the Woods. He began typing and swiping furiously as they walked. Should I take you to the office then, or to the choir room? Um, dunno, I'm figuring it out. Aziraphale felt a swell of compassion and frustration on his behalf. Walking alone was one of the stabilizing joys of his life, and here Adam couldn't even walk a few blocks home on his own for fear of falling unconscious in the street. More and more, 
Aziraphale noticed the thousand small ways Adam organized his life to ensure he had a friend nearby. It took a great deal of work. Office, said Adam. Very good. Aziraphale shifted his grip on the bag of precious books and followed him up the stairs. Their steps echoed across the commons, which were empty except for some seniors hanging butcher paper posters for the next dance. Springfling. It had an associated hashtag, apparently. There was a bench outside the main office for students to wait on rides. But Adam tugged the office door open and strolled inside like he owned the place. Wait, are you... Aziraphale started and trailed off, a little confused. There was no reason for Adam to go into the office. Of course, there was no reason he shouldn't, Aziraphale reminded himself, cursing the fog of sleep deprivation that had plagued him all month. He followed Adam through the door issuing a fervent prayer that he wouldn't run into principle right. No such luck. There was Gabriel's Ken Dole handsome profile, right there in reception, beaming vacantly at whoever he was saying goodbye to. Of all the rotten luck. Then Anthony J. Crowley stepped forward. Wait, from where? How did he get outside the pub? Was he allowed at school? He was shaking Gabriel's hand, but looking this way with a spreading grin. Aziraphale's heart had stopped. He was going into cardiac arrest. It wasn't that he couldn't handle this. He could. He was over it. He was getting better. He was fine. It was just a surprise, that was all. A heart-stopping surprise. It had been so long since he'd slept. He wondered whether Gabriel would call the ambulance or blithely stand by and wait for the office staff to do it. He was approaching now in slow motion, squeezing Adam's shoulder on his way by, dark glasses never turning away from... And although Aziraphale almost never swore, apparently seeing Crowley in his own place of work, Crowley in a slim black wool coat holding smart leather gloves, Crowley in a cashmere blend scarf with devastatingly red hair, Crowley smiling and reaching a hand out to shake as if... as if... Fuck, thought Aziraphale. Hello, Aziraphale, said Crowley. Um, said Aziraphale. Adam ignored them both as he texted away. Gabriel booted up the introduction protocol and clapped his hands together. Mr. Fell, you remember AJ? He's from the levee and what do you know, you're both British! Aziraphale clutched his precious bag tighter so he wouldn't have to decide whether to shake hands. Which, he dimly realized, was a way of refusing to shake hands.
What was Crowley doing here? Why did his hair look so soft? Why didn't he have the decency to stop smiling? How could he look so obscenely tempting under a scarf and overcoat? Why had they never kissed? Why wouldn't his heart beat any more? Why couldn't everyone just leave well enough alone? Fuck, thought Aziraphale again. Fuck 